Previously on Flying the Line, a bankruptcy court's order and award imposes a settlement on the Continental Pilot Strike. This podcast is brought to you by the Airline Pilots Association. ALPA supports its pilots through a variety of resources, including the official ALPA app. Download the app for the latest news, easy access to KCM locations, jump seat information, news from your LEC and MEC, and more. It's even got the orange card and an e-version of your member ID. Visit alpha.org apps to download, or search Alpa app in your smartphone's app store. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, a bridge from the book Flying the Line, Volume 2, by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 15. Blue Skies and MEC Wars, The Origins of the United Strike of 1985, Part 1. It's been said that all politics is local, that great historical events have humble grassroots origins. The same principle holds true of ALPA. Much of its history lies hidden at the Master Executive Council, or MEC, level, where complex struggles and obscure local issues have often dictated the outcome of significant events. For example, the relatively simple question, what caused the United Strike of 1985, elicits complex answers keyed to the local situation at United Airlines. Without knowing the internal dynamics of the United Pilot Group and the history of its MEC, particularly during the early 1980s, no genuine understanding of the 1985 strike is possible. Among the cast of characters who figured prominently in the strike, we must first deal with John Ferg, the MEC chair who led the pilot group into the 1980s. Ferg's relationship with United CEO Dick Ferris, the rapid-fire talker who shot to the top of United's corporate hierarchy, also figures. Why did Ferg's relationship with Ferris lead to the now-infamous Blue Skies contract of 1981? Without understanding blue skies, we cannot understand what the strike was about. John Ferg came to United in the Capital Airlines merger of 1961. That transition was difficult for the Capital Pilot Group. The typical Capital Pilot had many attributes normally associated with blue-collar unionism. By contrast, the United Pilot Group earned a reputation as the most aristocratic in ALPA particularly after World War II. By the 1950s, the typical United pilot was a college graduate with a military background and a managerial mentality. United personnel managers, when hiring pilots, might as well have been interviewing for executive positions. In fact, they used psychological tests to select pilots who would be more inclined to think along company lines. Significantly, United would have no pilot strikes between 1951 and 1985, a span of 34 years. The unintended consequence of United's hiring policies was that blue-collar capital pilots like John Ferg began gravitating into ALPA leadership positions. By the 1960s, United pilots seemed less interested in ALPA affairs than earlier ones. Few United pilots by the late 1970s either knew or cared about John Ferg's history. 
when he re-emerged as a force in United's internal Alpa politics in the late 1970s, the old division generated by the capital merger had largely faded from memory. Another twist in United's hiring policies added to this problem. For a brief period in the mid-1960s, a genuine pilot shortage existed. Between the end of the Korean War and the outbreak of the Vietnam War, military pilot training programs shrank. Thus, when the mid-1960s jet revolution took hold, and vast numbers of new passengers expanded the need for airline crews, the traditional source of pilots had all but dried up. As the military downsized in the Eisenhower years, it not only cut back pilot training programs, but also increased the length of obligated service for people who underwent training, which meant that many pilots would remain in the service for a full career. United tried to remedy this shortage by hiring and training its own pilots, who were usually college-educated young men with just a private ticket and only a few hours of single-engine time. Quite possibly, management saw these low-time new hires as adding to the union apathy among its pilots. If that was indeed the goal, it failed miserably. Two future MEC chairmen, Roger Hall and Rick Dubinsky, came from this category of new hires and, as we shall see, proved far less than indifferent. But in the short run, United's hiring of low-time new hires might have contributed to the rank-and-file disinterest that allowed old capital pilots like John Ferg to rise. Following Ferg's recall from the MEC chairmanship, he disappeared from Alpha Affairs for the remainder of the 1960s. Then, in the early 1970s, he earned considerable notoriety among United pilots through the Rainey case, a termination action that saw him voluntarily testify against a fellow pilot in a safety-related matter. United's MEC formally censured Ferg. He sued the MEC over it, citing freedom of speech issues and lack of due process, because the MEC had not granted him a hearing before the censure and won an out-of-court settlement that included modest cash damages. All this, when coupled with his considerable talent as a speaker, meant that John Ferg was by no means finished. But from his recall in 1965 until his old Capitol colleague Bill Arsenault fell from power in 1975, Ferg generally kept a low profile. In 1977, he returned to the MEC as the Denver captain rep. Within two years, Ferg was able to command more support than MEC Chair Dick Cosgrave. When Cosgrave's term ended in 1980, Ferg became chair. Chuck Pierce, who would serve as the MEC Secretary-Treasurer during part of Ferg's term as chair, recalled that as the Denver LEC chair, Ferg had access to a broad spectrum of pilots passing through the airline's training center. Pierce said that Ferg gave him the impression of someone who was very calculating and never did anything without a reason, and that he expressed dissatisfaction with where the national organization was going. Ferg subsequently went on to become ALPA's first vice president at the end of the O'Donnell years. A number of ALPA's senior leaders worried about Ferg's increasingly chummy relationship with Dick Ferris. The United CEO was young and articulate, and the pilot group liked him, so much, in fact, that they gave him an honorary ALPA seniority number. Ferris had learned to fly after becoming United CEO, 
and he tooled around to various domiciles in a Learjet Model 24, favorably impressing the pilot group with both his plans for the future and his airmanship. How many United pilots of that era knew that E.L. Cord, the calculating Century Airlines owner, had actually done the same thing a generation earlier? In Cord's case, flying his own Stinson trimotor convinced him that there was really nothing much to flying, which justified cutting his pilot's salaries. Cord never went flying unless the weather was perfect, and his own personal pilot always came along in case the weather turned sour. Ferris's flying was a lot like Cord's, which was a bad omen. But oblivious to these concerns, John Ferg, who eventually became MEC chair, made Ferris's ALPA number real rather than honorary. Should he ever choose to do so, Dick Ferris would actually be able to fly the line. Ferg's relationship with Dick Ferris bears analysis within the United context. Following Bill Arsenault's recall in 1975, the next two MEC chairs, Jerry Pride and Dick Cosgrave, resumed a moderate approach to dealing with a company, which had traditionally characterized the United Pilot Group. But this pro-company passivity among pilots was beginning to wear thin, largely because United had become a stagnant carrier. As the largest airline in the free world, United got little consideration from government regulators awarding new routes. Instead, smaller airlines got the route awards, and consequently, most of the growth. As the 1970s came to an end, the typical United pilot, for all his managerial mentality, could look elsewhere and see five-year captains sitting in the left seats of other carriers. Meanwhile, the sight of graying pilots still holding only second officer bids was common at United. Although they liked and respected Eddie Carlson, Dick Ferris's mentor and predecessor as United CEO, his tenure had done little for the United Pilots' stagnant promotion list. When Ferris took over, most United Pilots found his sales pitch irresistible, making Ferg's activism possible. At some point after the onset of deregulation in 1978, Dick Ferris and John Ferg made a deal. If Ferg would move the United Pilot Group towards liberalized work rules through a major contract revision, Ferris would use this form of give-back to grow the airline. When United soared into a brave new future, Ferris would do right by the pilots, whose generous concessions had made it all possible. Presumably, Alpa's example would leave United's other unions no choice but to follow. To understand the gravity of this issue, we must take a brief look at the givebacks that characterized the recessionary early 1980s and the instrument through which these contract concessions were often made, the side letter. The basic technical trick that resulted in ALPA's four golden decades of collective bargaining success was Dave Benke's absolute rejection of any form of flat monthly salary. By basing pilot pay on a complex system of piecework, under which compensation depended upon the type of flying and equipment, ALPA and the airline piloting profession prospered. The early private airmail operators inherited this piecework pay system from the old post office airmail service, and they didn't like it. Naturally, the private airmail operators preferred to pay their pilots a flat monthly salary. It was simpler, 
and when faster, more productive equipment came on the line, management, not pilots, would derive the benefits. The private operator's effort to substitute a flat monthly pay scale for the old post office system was the root cause of ALPA's formation. Eventually, Dave Benke threatened a nationwide strike over flat monthly pay scales in 1933. This piecework approach to collective bargaining, coupled with government regulation, meant that when one pilot group got a contractual advantage, it inevitably flowed to other groups. The technical name for this practice is pattern bargaining, which meant that a single pattern of pay became the standard for the whole industry. Under government regulation, the airlines could pass along costs to customers, so management had little incentive to resist pattern bargaining. The drawback to pattern bargaining was that in a time of concessionary contracts, it would also serve to ratchet pay and working conditions down. Increasingly buffeted by ALPA's skill at using pattern bargaining to fine-tune contracts, management occasionally won concessions and givebacks through local side-letter modifications to existing contracts. Of course, the economic downturn of the early 1980s, coupled with the adverse effect of deregulation, caused an avalanche of side-letter givebacks. Eventually, the 1984 BOD meeting would adopt stringent measures to keep individual MECs from giving away the shop. Future side-letter negotiations would require the physical or monitoring presence of an ALPA national representative, plus formal notification of any changes generated by such an agreement. The game John Ferg played with Dick Ferris in the early 1980s triggered this unprecedented attempt by ALPA's national officers to look over the shoulders of local negotiators. In the beginning, Ferg's proposal to grant Ferris drastic contract concessions to get United growing won support from many junior pilots. Labeled Blue Skies, these work rule concessions would add about two days per month to each United pilot's flying. In return, Blue Skies raised pilot pay, but in a way that would have given Dave Benke fits, a version of flat monthly salaries. Before Ferg took over as MEC chair, Dick Ferris began pushing contract concessions using a variety of techniques, arguing that the flood of post-deregulation new entrant airlines required a drastic response. Ferris warned United's pilots that if they did nothing, the airline might actually fail. Ferris was an acknowledged master at the art of roadshows, so good, in fact, that on the eve of the strike in 1985, United's MEC urged pilots to boycott them. Once Ferg became MEC chair in 1980, Ferris had an ally instead of a watchdog. Using every tactic at their command, Ferris and Ferg jointly painted a picture that was alternately bleak without blue skies and rosy with it. Flying around to various pilot domiciles in his Learjet, Ferris wowed the assembled pilots with visions of rapid captaincies. For pilots who could not make the meetings, Ferris installed VCRs in crew lounges. The videotaped wisdom of Dick Ferris, with John Ferg cheerleading, was omnipresent. Another factor in the selling of Blue Skies rested on Ferg's appeal to a growing dissatisfaction with ALPA President J.J. O'Donnell's leadership. Ferg's reputation as a fiery public speaker accelerated during Operation USA in 1980 
and he became quite adept at exploiting Pilot's anger over the giveaway of the third crew member by the 1981 Presidential Emergency Board. Ferg could be particularly spiteful on the crew compliment issue, which plagued Alpa and caused the United Pilot Group to feel resentful of other pilot groups. Deregulation also played a role in the selling of blue skies. Although United's pilots had loyally towed the line in opposing deregulation along with the rest of ALPA, their boss, Dick Ferris, was one of its foremost supporters. During Dick Cosgrave's term as MEC chair, Ferris's arguments gathered steam, and quiet support for deregulation grew among United's pilots. Next time on Flying the Line, a FERC-Ferris alliance and the contentious Blue Skies Agreement lead to concerns about the United pilots' possible secession from ALPA. Thank you for listening. This has been Chapter 15, Part 1 of Flying the Line 2 by George E. Hopkins, Copyright 2000. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or find us on all major podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association International. Production copyright ALPA 2024, all rights reserved.